only 11 verses, you say? Oh man, this episode will be short. Aw, honey, welcome to the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. It's true, we are only diving into 11 verses this episode of The Backdrop. I'm Curtis, as usual, and I am very glad that you've joined me as we look at Romans 3, 21 to 31 here today. But don't worry, we've got plenty to talk about. And yes, I know none of you were actually worried that I wouldn't have enough to talk about. Anyway, this passage marks Paul pivoting from the problem that he sketched out in chapter 1, 18 through 320, and to the solution— what God is doing about the fact that all of humanity, even Israel, has fallen away. And so God's plan to bring justice and goodness to all of creation is seemingly on the ropes. How does God stay faithful to the promises that they have made when the means by which those promises were supposed to have been fulfilled, humans, have failed to be who they were supposed to be? Just to make sure we are clear before we dive into our passage for today, the problem I just referred to, The one Paul details in these first chapters of Romans is not primarily a problem for humans. It is primarily a problem for God. Our scope needs to broaden out for us to understand what Paul's doing. The question is not, how can we humans get to heaven when we've all sinned? Instead, it is, how can God be faithful to creation when God's chosen messengers have failed to deliver the message? It seems that God needs to choose between being faithful to creation— and the ultimate goal of filling it with goodness and justice, or being faithful to the humans, and particularly Israel, whom God had promised would be the means by which creation would be filled with goodness and justice. But God can't choose one or the other without showing themselves to be unrighteous, unfaithful. God made both sets of promises, so both sets of promises need to be fulfilled for God's character and reputation to be preserved. This seems impossible. What is God going to do? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26 begin to address that. But now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice has been displayed. God's covenant justice comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, for the benefit of all who have faith. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fell short of God's glory. And by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption, which is found in the Messiah, Jesus. God put Jesus forth as the place of mercy by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his covenant justice through the passing over in divine forbearance of sins committed beforehand. This was to demonstrate his covenant justice in the present time. That is that he himself is in the right and that he declares to be in the right everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus. Paul's answer, of course, is Jesus, to the surprise of no one who knows anything about Paul or who has read his introduction to this letter. It is not Torah, the law, that shows God's faithfulness, God's covenant justice, as Wright translates it. We saw that in the previous episode. The Torah, in fact, sets up the problem that we just outlined. It shows how Israel has behaved just like all the other nations, despite being given God's law. So God's faithfulness to the covenant needs to be shown apart from the law, even as the Old Testament itself gives previews of what God had planned all along. The phrase, the law and the prophets, was basically shorthand for the whole Old Testament. 
We've seen this in how Paul has echoed so many Old Testament passages so far, and we will continue to see it next time when Paul spends an extended amount of chapter 4 unpacking the story of Abraham. N.T. Wright emphasizes, this is not just a matter of being able to prove the gospel from ancient authoritative scriptures. It signals the continuity and reliability of God's purpose, which is part of the meaning of God's covenant faithfulness itself. God is doing a new thing in Jesus. It's not what most expected, but the hints were there all along. Just their meaning didn't become clear until Jesus' death and resurrection showed us how to interpret them. Like when Hercule Poirot gathers all the suspects at the end of an Agatha Christie mystery to point out all the clues that had been lying around the whole time, unnoticed by anyone but him. No, God's faithfulness to the covenant comes about because of Jesus' faithfulness. We touched on this in the intro pod, but this is where it becomes important. The word Paul uses, faithfulness, is one that can have a variety of meanings, but the context tells us which of those shades of meaning Paul had in mind. As N.T. Wright puts it, Paul is not speaking of Jesus's faith, either in the sense of the things Jesus believed, or Jesus's exemplary trust in God, or Jesus's religious experience, nor is he suggesting that Jesus's obedience was somehow meritorious, so that by it he earned righteousness on behalf of others. That is, and by the way, for all of you listening who maybe are not familiar with this, what is about to come is what it looks like when a distinguished scholar throws serious shade at those who disagree with him. You ready? Buckle in. <clears throat> that is an ingenious and far-reaching way of making Paul's language fit into a theological scheme very different from his own. Ooh, you got burned, neo-Calvinists. Sorry. Wright goes on. Rather, he is highlighting Jesus' faithful obedience, or perhaps we should say Jesus' obedient faithfulness, to the saving plan marked out for Israel, the plan by which God would save the world. On the cross, Jesus accomplished what God had always intended the covenant to achieve. Where Israel as a whole had been faithless, Jesus was faithful. Jesus, in other words, solves God's problem. A faithful representative of Israel who fulfills both God's promises to Israel and God's promises to creation. Moving on now to that key verse on the old Romans road, Paul says that all sinned and fell short of God's glory. Not all have sinned, but all sinned. The tense in Greek shows that Paul is thinking of a single past event that then has ongoing present-day consequences, namely the loss of God's glory. In Jewish literature of the time, N.T. Wright points out, losing God's glory is closely related with the fall of Adam, just as the sense of regaining Adam's glory is one of the key features of the expected coming redemption. In other words, this is an anticipation of the later discussion Paul has about sin entering the world through one man, meaning Adam, and being dealt with through one man, meaning Jesus. Whether Paul thought there was a literal Adam or just that the story of Adam is a literary device that makes his point isn't really important here. The idea is that one of sin's ongoing consequences is that humans do not reflect the glory of God as they were intended to from the beginning from the story of Adam on. But then the verdict is reversed and they are declared by God, the judge, to be in the right. How can the righteous judge, 
Wright asks, make such an announcement about those who a moment ago were sitting in the dock guilty and without defense? Paul gives us two main answers. First, that this being declared in the right is a pure gift of God's grace, giving to humanity what they could never earn or accomplish for themselves. It's crucial that we understand that there is no hint here of an angry medieval king sort of God demanding revenge on those who have wronged him and not stopping until he gets blood. Nor, even worse, of that sort of God who doesn't much care whose blood he gets, and so if Jesus wants to offer his blood instead, well, that'll do as long as someone pays. Angry God the Father is not appeased by the murder of his son. That isn't who our God is. That is what petty medieval kings, sadistic Roman emperors, and, tellingly, bloodthirsty pagan gods and goddesses were like. But our God is holy not like the other gods. And perhaps the greatest mistake we have ever made in interpreting the Bible is to allow those false gods to determine how we see the true God. I've tried to show in all these backdrop series, Jeremiah, Matthew, Romans, Revelation, that in none of these places is the picture of God the bloodthirsty must exact payment for sin God. That is a false God and not one that we need to hold on to. The goal God has What God's righteousness demands is not that every lowercase sin be punished. It is that the uppercase sin be eradicated. Jumping ahead to verse 25 for a second, what God does here is not punish sin. It is pass over sin. The sin goes away because punishing sin isn't and never was the goal. The goal is a creation that is filled with God's goodness and justice and partnering with humans to accomplish that. Sin doesn't have to be punished to make that goal happen. It needs to be made no more. God's goal is not to punish those who have destroyed creation. Their goal is to stop the destruction. And so the free gift offered by Jesus is that sin would be passed over. It would disappear like a puff of smoke from an extinguished fire. I'd like to shout out here the great New Testament professor, Marianne Mai Thompson, who was one of the first to really bring this to my attention when she explained to our class that she loves the song In Christ Alone, but that she always changes one line when she sings it. Because on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was not satisfied, at least not in the way the Bible and passages like this one talk about it. Instead, the wrath of God, the great anger we saw last episode that God rightly feels when the good creation is corrupted by sin and injustice and violence destroy what God had dreamed of, the wrath of God is set aside. The wrath of God, biblically speaking, is not satisfied on the cross. It is set aside. Thank God that our God is not some petty bully who needs to make someone pay, even after already getting their way. Our God makes sin no more, sets it aside, passes over it, rids creation of it. And so that's the first way humans can be declared in the right and included in God's covenant family. God passes over their sin and, like the father of the prodigal son, welcomes them home with a party, not punishment. The second reason Paul gives is that all of this is accomplished through the redemption which is found in the Messiah, Jesus. Redemption is an economic metaphor, especially one from the slave market one that has unmistakable undertones of the Exodus story, when God redeemed Israel, setting them free from slavery in Egypt. In some sense, Paul says, Jesus' work has been to set humans free in a similar way, just 
free from slavery to sin rather than to Pharaoh. This is a metaphor. And it's important to remember that it is a metaphor. Jesus doesn't make a payment to sin to redeem us any more than Yahweh made a payment to Pharaoh to redeem the Hebrew slaves in that story. They were redeemed in the sense of being set free from slavery permanently, now being able to serve a new master, God, not redeemed in the sense of actually being paid for. Metaphors often only work partway and kind of fall apart when you push too hard. But it's also a metaphor that, as Wright points out, evokes a whole world of thought and a new lens through which to see the world and what Jesus has done for it. This theme gets expanded on greatly in chapters 5 through 8, the next main section of this letter, and we'll get to all that in more detail in future episodes. For now, I'll just want to say that, especially with the extended discussion of Abraham that follows in chapter 4, this would have brought to mind for those who knew Abraham's story, that one of the promises God makes to Abraham is that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land who would be rescued at the proper time. So was that promise that God made to Abraham fulfilled in the Exodus or was it fulfilled in Jesus? Paul would say both. And finally, let's look at verses 25 and 26, which layer on a couple more metaphors for Jesus's work. First, Paul says that God put Jesus forth, which is sacrificial language, often used in the Old Testament to describe the bread that was in the temple, put forth as a sign of God's provision. And then Jesus is described as the place of mercy, which is what the Old Testament calls the place on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was thought to sit. This mercy seat, as it's sometimes called, was especially important on the Day of Atonement, the ceremony once a year when Israel's sin, capital S, was set aside after sacrifices. So Paul is highlighting here that Jesus is the one who once for all causes sin to be set aside and ensures God's presence with and provision for people. This is not an indication that Jesus' death was a payment for sin, because despite what some people seem to think, the Old Testament does not look at sacrifices as payment for sin either. They are symbolic ceremonies that enact sin being removed. The bull, or whatever, do not suffer the punishment for sin on behalf of the people. That isn't how the symbolism worked in the Old Testament. So it would be strange to now put it on Jesus when that isn't what the roots of it meant. And as we've said already, the very next verse says that God's righteousness is demonstrated not in punishing sin, but in passing it over. God is in the right because sin is dealt with. Humans are in the right because they are now able to truly be part of God's people. Or, put another way, God has fulfilled the promises made in the covenant, and all humanity is now able to be a part of that covenant family. And both happen because of Jesus's death and resurrection. With that said, let's move on to the final verses of chapter 3, 27 to 31. So, what happens to boasting? It is ruled out. Through what sort of law? The law of works? No, through the law of faith. We calculate, you see, that a person is declared to be in the right on the basis of faith, apart from works of the law. Or does God belong only to the Jews? Doesn't he belong to the nations as well? Yes, of course, to the nations as well, since God is one. 
he will make the declaration in the right over the circumcised on the basis of faith and over the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then abolish the law through faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. This section is an expansion on the idea introduced in verses, verse 26, that everyone who trusts in the faithfulness of Jesus is justified or declared in the right, as our translation puts it. Verse 27, then, is a callback to the earlier discussion of boasting in Torah or circumcision that we touched on last episode. That isn't how one is justified, which, again, means not declared to be a good person, but declared to be part of God's family. One is not a part of God's family through works of the law or through the Torah, but through faith. Again, we talked about all this at the end of last episode, that works of the law is not referring to doing good things, as if Jews expected to be part of God's family by earning it through being really good. Scholars of first century Judaism have established that this is not how they thought about things. Instead, works of the law should be understood as doing the things that mark someone out as distinctly Jewish. Specifically, keep Sabbath, keep kosher, get circumcised. If that were how one became part of God's family, then God would only belong to Jews, as verse 29 says here. Jews alone would be part of God's family. But the Old Testament itself is unanimous in affirming that Yahweh is not just the God of Israel, but is the God of the whole earth, all nations. And Paul does something really ingenious here. If God is one, which is, of course, the core theological statement of Israel, hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. And if God is the God of the whole earth, well then, God is the God of the nations as well. One God means there must be one people of God. And that people of God, in order to be one, must consist not just of those who do Jewish works like circumcision, but it must be those who have faith. Specifically, Paul means those who believe the gospel, who affirm that Jesus, the risen Messiah, is Lord, and then show that by living like it. Paul, as Wright puts it, doesn't draw a sharp distinction between believing in Jesus, that is, what you think about him, and being loyal to Jesus, that is, what you do as a result. They're two sides of the same coin. And when someone has that sort of faith, Paul believes, the Torah is in fact being fulfilled in ways that he explains in greater detail in the third section of the book, chapters 9 through 11. This family being constituted on the basis of faith somehow, in fact, establishes the law rather than, as one might suppose, abolishing it. As Jesus said, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But almost paradoxically, to fulfill it by not requiring things like circumcision that the law itself requires. Instead, the key here, as in last episode, is to recognize that Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, they all talk about circumcision of the heart, or the law being written on the heart, or having a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, that that is the ultimate goal. This is, after all, the goal God laid out for Abraham, that all nations, not just Israel, would be blessed through him and his family. On the basis of this, Paul argues that the badge of membership, so to speak, in God's family, is not circumcision or other such works of the law, but is instead faith. Wherever faith in Jesus is found, we can be sure that person is part of God's family. They have been justified. So to sum all this up, I want to quote N.T. Wright once more. 
The rhetorical force of this paragraph, he writes, is thus to say that God has unveiled in Jesus the Messiah and supremely in his death, that covenant faithfulness, that saving justice through which the outstanding problem of sin and wrath has been dealt with, so that now a new covenant family emerges, consisting of Jews and Gentiles alike, characterized by the faith that answers to the faithfulness of the Messiah. And that is where we will wrap up for now. There, see, if not short, it was at least shorter, right? Thanks for joining me as we went through these verses that offer almost a preview of the fuller discussion of some of these same ideas that Paul will return to later in Romans. Next time, we'll be going through all of chapter 4, which is Paul's discussion of the story of Abraham, especially Genesis 15. In fact, it might be a good idea to read both those chapters, Romans 4 and Genesis 15, to have them both fresh in mind before listening to next Backdrop episode. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Bye! Bye!